Let's see Christ together as we turn in our Bibles to John chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. John 8, and we'll be studying verses 12 through 30 today. And I'll begin just by reading for us uh, verse 12. For those of you who may be wondering why we're starting here, as opposed to chapter 7, verse 53, where it seems that we left off, I would encourage you just to look at the textual note that's probably in your translation of God's Word. If that's confusing uh, for you, you can look in a good study Bible and understand uh, why I'm starting here as opposed to verse 53. And if that's still confusing for you, feel free to talk to me or another one of the elders. We'd be happy to serve you with that. But right now, it's very clear that the text of John actually continues from where we left off at chapter 8, verse 12. So that's where we'll begin our reading today. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, and yes, I'm pausing again. Last week, people thought that when I paused that I was emotionally moved or that I had lost my place in the text. I'm not lost, but I am stopping already. Last week, we paused before reading the actual words of Jesus because you needed some historical background to help you understand the significance of what he was about to say. Uh, We shared that it was the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the high point of the Jewish uh, festivals, that uh, this was the time that they were celebrating uh, that season when they were transitioning from slaves in Egypt to their own promised land, and God provided for them in miraculous ways. It was an amazing event. And Tabernacles was an amazing party, an amazing festival that corresponded to that event, replete with tents and camping, replete with water ceremonies that spoke to God's miraculous provision of water in the desert, and replete with one more ceremony that I did not share with you last week that may be worth your time and attention this week. Essentially, what would happen at this particular ceremony was after the water pouring ceremony during the morning, the people would break off into groups and spend time with one another and enjoy just relationship. But by many accounts, things would then pick up on the ceremonial end at night. Everybody would try to squeeze into the, the, the court of women. So the, the, the temple complex is massive. The outer court is the Gentile court. The, the, the women's court, Jewish women and Jewish men could enter that. And inside that were actually four huge candelabras or um, think of just massive torches. Uh, They they would erect these specifically for the tabernacle event. Uh, By some accounts, uh, these things would reach 65 feet tall. And young priests would carry somewhere between 10 and 20 gallons of oil up a ladder and pour it upon the wick so that these torches could be lit at night, thereby enabling the celebration to go on into the hours of the night. Now, it wasn't just that it created a cool ambiance, and a cool ambiance it did create. In fact, some historians say that the light from the tabernacle could be seen anywhere in Jerusalem in the evenings. But it was symbolic. It was pointing them back to another one of those amazing things that happened in the Exodus event. None other than that pillar of fire that would come down in the evenings and thereby protect the children of Israel amid the darkness. I have no idea what that actually looked like, but it blows me away. 
I always imagine it as like this mix between a fire and a tornado. Because <laughs> it had to be a column of some kind. And yet, that would be the protective mechanism for the children of Israel. In fact, there's that one threatening scene in which Pharaoh's soldiers are bearing down on them. And what happens? That fire moves between them and Pharaoh. Indicating to me that it was nighttime when that dreadful event took place. And yet they saw that as God, their protector, coming down to provide for them. And so the general theme of light that would take place throughout the entire Bible of good versus evil, motifs that are even picked up in our own literature, are taken up a few notches in Judaism in particular because God revealed himself as the one who would come down and be the blazing light for his people, a protector, a provider, a leader. And so they were celebrating this through this ceremony. And I don't know when Jesus spoke these particular words, but I do know that it would not have been lost upon the people that he would then say, and we pick up our reading, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. Jesus is saying in this, I am the light that you are celebrating. I am the one who has descended from on high and represents God's presence, and you must follow me if you will have life. It's clear. The whole passage that we're about to read is about following Jesus as the light who is God. Now, here's the crazy thing, friends. You're going to read this, and you're like, all right, great, a message on the light of the world. But you want to know it's crazy? From 13 to 30, there's no more mention of light. (laughs) It's like Jesus introduces his subject and then moves on to something else. But here's what you will hear, that Jesus is from God that he represents God. Seven different times in these few verses, Jesus is going to say, I'm the one that represents God. I am from him. I represent him. I am equal to him. It is just another way of using the metaphor. Now, instead of using the picture, he's actually explaining the point. I am the one who comes from God. I am his representative. Just as the fire represented God and, and was directly equal with his presence in the Old Testament, so also I am that. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to invite everyone to follow him in the same way the children of Israel would follow that cloud and that pillar of fire at night. Now, that being said, there's going to be a little bit of a problem because the religious leaders, for the first time, this is probably going to be fascinating to you, at least it blew me away, they're going to argue with Jesus about this. You're like, they've been arguing with him the whole time. No, they haven't. They've been too scared. If you read John carefully, you'll notice up to this point that they've plotted and they've questioned to one another, but they've never directly addressed Jesus. They've been afraid of him. Here they finally work up the gumption to provide a direct challenge to him because he has made such a strong and provocative statement, saying, I am the light of the world in this context. Is him actually saying that he is the divine Messiah, this new representation of Yahweh for his people? And they will have none of it. And through the argument, this is so cool to me, Jesus will continue to make his point. They're trying to get him off topic, and he will continue to prove that he is indeed the light of the world throughout. And he's going to do this in three different ways. What you're going to see are some incentives for following Jesus as the light of the world through this text. And because it is admittedly complex, uh, I would say 10 being like Dolchavesky and 1 being, you know, C. Jane Run, like on the the difficulty scale, we're going to be somewhere around a 7 or an 8 this morning. But don't be scared about that. I'm going to break it down into smaller movements. Jesus is making the argument, I'm the light of the world. I am the one who represents God. Follow me. That's the main point. But he gives us three incentives for doing that. And if you're taking notes, this might be helpful, especially for a complicated text like this. Verses 13 to 20, 
The first incentive is the truthfulness of his testimony. The truthfulness of his testimony. The, the second incentive is in verses 21 to 24, and that is the distinction of his destiny. The distinction of his destiny. And the third is in verses 25 to 30, the disclosure of his deity. The disclosure of his deity. Now, I repeat these again, but I want you to catch the point. Notice the invitation again in verse 12. I am the light of the world. Notice that, the light, not a light. I am the light for the world. Whoever follows me, just like the children of Israel would follow that that cloud and that pillar of light at night, will not walk in darkness. They will not remain in obscurity. They, they will not experience life apart from God's presence, but will have the light that is characterized by life. Light, life, as opposed to death, darkness. You get the picture. So here's why you should follow him in this way. This is good for us who are already following Jesus to be reminded, and it's especially good for those who are not following Jesus who have some other ultimate, some other kind of north star, some other thing that they're pursuing with their life. We want to be able to help them. How can we incentivize them to follow Jesus? Three things. First, the truthfulness of his testimony. Notice Jesus has just given official testimony. He has just said who he is. And in verse 13, the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, earlier, you may remember in John 5, Jesus says, hey, look, if I testify of myself alone was the implication, my testimony is not valid. You can't, like, admit it in a court case. But the point that Jesus was making back then is, I don't speak alone. The Father also speaks for me. So here, they're trying to say, you can't say this kind of stuff. Remember, this is the first time they've ever addressed him. You can't talk this way. You can't say that you're the divine Messiah, that you're the representative of God, that you're the light of the world by yourself. You need the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, they're trying to appeal to Old Testament law. Some of you have read the book of Deuteronomy, and you've seen that stuff in there about having two or three witnesses. But what's interesting, just like legal insight here, is that you only needed two or three witnesses if you were accused of a crime and you needed to be actually formally acquitted or accused. Like there was, it was only when you had done something wrong and you were going to be sentenced or tried. Like the everyday ordinary Joe could say whatever he wanted to about like where he came from and where he was going. So you can't say, like if I say uh, Greenville, North Carolina, and... Hopefully, in the beginning of December, I'll be going to Togo, Africa to teach. I'm telling you where I'm coming from, where I'm going. Nobody can say, liar! Like, who would do that? Now, again, if I was being convicted of murder, I would need more than one witness to like, actually prove that I had murdered someone. But Jesus is not in that context. At first, he's just saying, like, I could say where I'm from and where I'm going. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just telling you who I am. And frankly, how could anybody else, like, who better to ask where you're from and where you're going than the individual himself? I mean, really, how would anybody else know where I'm from? (laughs) I think I know. Jesus is saying, I know where I'm from, I know where I'm going. You can't even, you guys are trying to object, and, and this is not even an issue, but this, I love this. He says, okay, well, let's play your game. Even if I did need two to three witnesses, I already got one. He probably used better grammar than I did. Already got was maybe not what he would say. He's saying, the Father testifies to me. Notice that in your text. Verse 14, this is where Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, it's elliptical, according to the flesh. Yet even if I do judge or assess my judgment or my assessment is true, 
for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Notice that. Jesus is saying, look, I'm not going around making the kind of judgments that you guys are trying to make. He says, but even if I did do it, whatever I say is going to be 100% right because the Father and I always say the, the very same thing. He's getting back to his claim to be equal with the Father, the thing that made them so upset in the first place back in John chapter 5. Notice, he says, verse 18 or 17, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true or valid. He says, all right, even if we go by the Deuteronomy law, I am the one who bears witness about myself, there's one, and then two, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now, you may not remember this, but you're like, well, how did they know that the Father had borne witness about him? Where did, where did the Father do this? Well, the Father had done this already in multiple ways. John's readers would have known this as clear as the blue sky outside because back in chapter 1, we know that Jesus was affirmed or attested to by an authorized representative, John the Baptist, who was a prophet. We also know that from John chapter 3, that Nicodemus, one of these guys who was just mentioned a few verses earlier, already said, do you remember? We know that you're from God by the signs that you do. One of the Pharisees had already said, oh, it's clear you're from God because you do these amazing miracles that only God could do. And that was the way that the Father had testified to Jesus, by enabling him as his son incarnate to do these mighty works. And Jesus in John 5 would say the same thing. Nobody's done the works that I do. The miracles that I'm doing are indeed the testimony that God is speaking, I am the light of the world. I am the one that comes from God. I get to fully represent him. And then he said it in John 5 that the scriptures also say this. But here he's saying, my father has already spoken to this. You've seen this. You know the miracles that I'm doing. And notice what they say in verse 19. They said to him, uh, where is your father? It's so funny. Jesus is already explaining who his father is, and they just don't want to admit it. So there's this kind of like impression that comes from reading the other gospels that one of the cards that they like to bring up with Jesus because he was of such dubious origin was that he was a bastard. What that means is an illegitimate child, one born out of, you know, some love relationship with someone other than one's own husband and wife. And in light of that, they're saying, okay, we'll prove your father. You got testimony? Okay, well, we'll bring this father of yours. So you don't know who he is anyway. And Jesus' response is simple. He doesn't get into a long argument with them about uh, theology and uh, well, Joseph was a legal dad and how the blood relationship came through Mary. He doesn't defend anything. He doesn't even acknowledge anything that they're saying. He just says the facts, and it's pretty clear here. You know neither me nor my father. You think you do. You don't know. If you knew me, you would know my father also. You don't know the father apart from me. He will not concede any ground. He said, I have told you, authenticated already by God, by the miraculous things that I do, that I am from him. You can't question that. You don't know who the father is unless you look at me and see me. It's impossible. I think sometimes we think that uh, people have to like humanly like come to terms with Jesus and like agree with him and understand him and like there's this dialogue. You know the old bumper sticker? I've heard R.C. Sproul talk about this before. Uh, it's, It's oftentimes in the cultural south. It'll say on the back, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You ever seen it? Like, yeah. I could say yeah to that if I took a Sharpie and crossed out the middle sentence. Who cares if you believe it? God said it, that settles it. 
That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Look, you can do all the theatrics that you want to try to do with Deuteronomy, but I am telling you as the authenticated one of God that I am from him. If you want to know what the Father's like, you look to me. God said it, that settles it, period. It's the truthfulness of his testimony. Like you can't, you can't deny this. This is who I am. And I say this to anyone who is struggling to accept Jesus as the all-consuming light of the world, our North Star, the one that we should orient our entire lives around. Like, on what basis would you object to his claim? Why would you not heed what he has said? You're like, well, I don't, I don't know that's true. Well, what do you know is true? How do you know anything is true? But do you think that Jesus is a fake because you read it on the internet? Is that our source of truth these days? You heard it in a philosophy class somewhere? I don't know, I've got the testimony of close to a billion people over the centuries, by the way, who have been dying for the same message. I just know this, that most people don't die for stuff that's not true. I, I love, I love um, C.S. Lewis's just assessment. It's so logical, so practical. I don't think he was the first one to ever see it. But truly, the claims of Jesus, they're so absolute, they're so clear that you really only have three options. He calls it a trilemma. Jesus is either Lord, who he says he is, he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. But there's nowhere in between. You can't say, I think he's a great philosophical teacher. Any man claiming to be the only way to God and that you're going to burn in hell apart from it, is, if it's not true, he is a deceitful individual. It's maniacal. Or there's the lunatic option. The man has totally lost his mind. Or he's the Lord. He is saying, I am equal with the Father. My testimony is trustworthy. The miracles back it up. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. You can't deny it. Incentive number one for following Jesus as the light of the world, the truthfulness of his testimony. There's a second incentive. He continues this, this interchange, and it's very fascinating the way that things transition here. Now he will talk about the distinction of his destiny. The distinction of his destiny. Uh, notice the scene, by the way. Look in verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not come. Here it is. He just made this climactic statement. I and the Father. Look, if you want to see the Father, you see me. We're equal. And it says that he's in the treasury. And I don't know about you, but like I read stuff like that and I'm like, I don't get much narrative detail. You know, it's like a lot of speech going on. And then you see something like that and you're like, why does he mention that he's in the treasury? (laughs) What does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Well, it is interesting that you would say. It's a good question. I love the fact that Jesus actually makes this very announcement in the spot where those candelabras were lit and in the spot where all the people would come and deposit their offerings. It was one of the most well-trafficked places in the entire temple. And listen to this, and in the spot where the Sanhedrin would meet. So basically what you had was a little building, like an outhouse, if you will, an outpost for the Sanhedrin. They would meet in their little spot right across from where they were, was the offerings. And here he is parked right in the hornet's nest saying everything that he wants to say. He's just claimed to be equal with the Father again. And guess what? They can't do jack squat about it. It says they couldn't do anything. And he goes on. He's not done. He says to them again, I am going away, verse 21, and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, notice this. The logic here is really sound, friends. Um, If you're going to follow somebody, right, you want to know where they're going. Another bumper sticker. I remember seeing this one in California. Follow me to Rattler's Barbecue. No, thank you. I'll take a pass. I don't like Rattler's Barbecue. I mean, like if somebody's saying, follow me, I want to know where you're going. 
Here Jesus is giving the invitation to follow him, and it needs to be really clear for all. Okay, so where are you headed? He said, I'm going somewhere where you guys cannot come. Oh, and by the way, where you're going, you're going to die in your sin. I'm going somewhere different than that. Now, uh, for those of you, again, we're talking about like reading literature, picking up on, um, you know, the, the, t- the hints that the author's laying down. I want you to catch something here as we read through the rest of this text. He's going to set up a contrast. Like he's intentionally going to create two categories. And this is where I want you to understand. He's, what he's laying out here is two different destinies. You can either follow this group of guys and get their destiny, or you can follow this one and you can get his destiny. Now, see if you see it. Listen out for the contrast as we continue to read. Verse 22, so the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going you cannot come? Let me pause there before we get to the contrast. Here it is, they're misunderstanding again, and what they're saying in Jewish uh, theory, by the way, especially in their rabbinical literature, suicide was automatic eternal hell. Now, time out, let's make a pastoral note for a moment, because these are hard times in which we live. That is not a Christian doctrine. I know that some of you probably grew up thinking if somebody commits suicide, they automatically go to hell. That is not in the Bible, that is of Jewish origin. Woe be to you if you think that you know what was going on in somebody's heart and life and mind because of what happened to them at the end of their life. You don't know. Time in. They're thinking, he's a cursed dude. <laughs> Where is it that he's going to go that we cannot come? At first they thought it was going to be in the Gentile regions, and now they're like, I guess he's going to hell. Listen to that. The Pharisees think, He's going to kill himself and go to hell. Yeah, I'm not going there. And now Jesus is going to set the record straight with this contrast. You ready? 23. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. (laughs) Notice that. I'm from here, above, you're from there, below. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. we got two different origins, and therefore we have two different destinations. And this is what he's claiming. You all, he says it three times, you're going to die in your sin. Sin has marked everyone, and statistics are still holding strong that 10 out of 10 die. And when they die in their sin, they're going to face God's eternal wrath and judgment. I mean, this was a fact. Nobody would be questioning that in John's audience. It says, look, this is where you're all headed. This is where all your rabbis are headed. This is where all of you, the religious elite of Jerusalem, I mean, like he says it so strongly, essentially, you're going to hell. But I, I'm of a different source. He's human. He's truly human. He's got a different source. And his stream is flowing a different direction. He says, I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm going somewhere where you cannot come. <laughs> Here it is. They think he's going to hell. And now he's telling them, no, you're going to hell. I'm going back to the presence of the Father. And unless you believe that I am he, so you will also burn forever in hell. So the only hope that they have of like going a different way is to believe There's the words, that I am he. The word he is not in in the text. We, We provide that. So just strike that for a moment with good confidence. Just trying to help you out, trying to help the grammar. And now let's say it for what it really says. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Some of you are shaking your head with that, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Exodus chapter 3, that's the covenant name of God. You're right. That is the covenant name of God. And while Jesus will make this more explicit in the future, and he's hinted at it in times past, like, it could be kind of confusing for them. Maybe he's just saying, unless you believe that I am dot, 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 
the light of the world, or I am dot, 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 the one who's equal with the Father. Like, they're thinking, surely he's not going to say that he is Yahweh. Or maybe he is. It's kind of confusing. But catch this for a second. All you who are listening today, let's not talk about them. Let's talk about right now. Unless you believe that Jesus is the I am, the covenant God, creator of the world, the one who chose and preserved his people, the one who is coming back to right all wrong, unless you believe that's him, that he's Lord, not liar, not lunatic, you're all going to die in your sin. I would die in my sin. It's the only exception. And so now let's get back to them because they're thinking, okay, well, what does he mean? Is he talking about I am the light, I am a Messiah, I am Yahweh? So they ask the question, who are you? Who are you? Look at it. It brings us to this, this new uh, thing, this We saw the distinctness of his destiny, but now there's another incentive where he's going to actually disclose his deity. He's about to disclose his deity in verses 25 to 30. So there's distinct destiny. That's a good reason. That's an incentive for following Jesus. You follow him, you go back into the Father's presence with him. You don't follow him, you die in your sins. To me, folks, that's a pretty clear-cut reason to follow Jesus. Anybody remember the old Robert Frost poem, probably the only one that you really memorized in high school, The Road Less Traveled? Anybody know that one? Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. I'm not going to recite the whole thing. I love that poem because like, when you read the commentary on it, Frost was like, I was just walking on a path one day, and I just saw two paths, and I didn't know which one I was going to, and I just knew that if I took this path, it'd take me a different place than another one. You know, like, you'll hear it quoted all the time, like it's this like, major life-changing moment. The truth is, we all kind of face these forks in the road from time to time, and you can't really know for sure where you're going. Well, Jesus, listen to this. Jesus has traveled the road. He's endured the death. He rose again. And he's proclaimed what happens. Like he's experienced it. I mean, consider the roads for a moment. Any religious teacher, any rabbi, any prophet, any, any priest, the, 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 the major religious options out, that are out there, or the skeptical options, uh, they know that death is coming and they have nothing to say on the other side of it. They're dead. They've died in their sins. In Christ, we only have, we have one here who has traveled the road and has called back to us and said, here's what it's like when you follow me. Yeah, there is death, but then there is life thereafter. To me, there's not much of a decision. I'll follow that light <laughs> because of the truthfulness of his testimony, because of the distinction of his destiny, and then finally because of the disclosure of his deity. So they said, who are you? And he will answer their question. Verse 25. Jesus said to them, who am I? Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. He's like, guys, I've been telling you this. (laughs) I've been telling you this. I mean, I'm thinking this from a literary perspective. I've been telling you this for three chapters now. He insults them before he actually gives them insight. He says, I have much to say about you. Here you are, you're wanting to talk about me, but I I just want you to know, I have much to say about you and much to judge, by the way, about you. Here they are putting him in the hot seat. Here they are trying him. He says, okay, look, I'm going to ask you a question, but before I I, I do, I just want you to know, I'm not done with you. I got more to say about you and I got more to judge about you, but let me answer your question. He who sent me is true And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Once again, Jesus is saying that he has come from the Father. He has already defined the one who sent him as the Father. He's saying, I am his representative. I speak on his behalf. Like, it's hard for us to get that. Like, like we don't understand, uh, like, the authority that would be invested in an emissary, especially, like, in an ancient Near Eastern culture. We normally think about, like, our kids. You know, you tell one kid... 
to tell another kid, to tell a kid something and that they'll automatically be like, I don't think mom said that. I don't believe you. You know, like there's, they have very little authority. But like an emissary in the ancient Near East, especially a son, especially a son, he had full legal authority to speak on behalf of his father. That's why there's that one parable, maybe you remember it, where Jesus talks about the wicked tenants who, like, the ruler went away. Do you remember the story? Like, the ruler went away, and he told these guys to manage his vineyard. And so then he went to, like, send some managers to check on it. And they're like, no, we don't want to work on the vineyard. And anyway, they, they insult the guys. They beat him up. And then the guy's like, okay, I'm going to send my son. Like, the way the story builds, like, you're supposed to be, as the reader, like, what? You're going to send your son? Because the son could be the full authorized representative. Jesus is claiming here to be the full authorized representative of the father. You want to know who I am? I am the one who represents the father. In light of the context, by the way, just as that column of fire at night represented Yahweh, so also I represent Yahweh. I am his official presence on earth. And here's what will blow your mind. This is why I call it the display or disclosure of his deity, notice this. So what does that look like? I mean, in the Old Testament, what it looked like was a big old blazing column of fire. I mean, that's pretty scary. It's pretty cool. So what does it look like now? What, is, what will Jesus look like as the representative of the Father? What's the climactic thing that he will do to show that he is God incarnate on the earth? Continue looking at the text. He says in verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Once again, that I am, strike the He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Now, follow me. Don't worry. I need a few more ounces of mental energy, and we're going to be downhill in just a second. Think with me. What does he mean by lifted up? He's already defined his terms in John, particularly in chapter 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus, where he says to be lifted up is like that bronze serpent being killed and then shaped. (laughs) And then, like, look, I mean, it's going to be on a pole and everybody's going to look at it. I mean, lifted up throughout John, you're going to see it two more times before the book ends, is none other than Jesus' crucifixion. And here's the deal. Whereas the full representation of God in the Old Testament was at least at one point represented by this blazing column of fire, Jesus is saying here, you will know that I am when you lift me up on a tree. When I am nailed to that cross, this will be the clearest picture and demonstration that I represent Yahweh. Have you imagined that, friends? Like when you think of like, what's the best way I could tell other people about what God is like? And we say stuff like, oh, well, let's look at creation. Or let's look at providence. Or let's look at all the amazing good things Ice cream is proof that God exists because why do we have taste buds if we couldn't taste something that great? Look, I get all those cute answers. But you know what Jesus says the best picture of God is? His son, fully, truly human, nailed to a Roman cross, suffering, bleeding, dying, enduring the wrath of God for the sin of all who would believe in him. Everything you need to know about God is seen in that event. His righteousness, the sins being paid for. His wrath, how much he hates it. His mercy, the fact that Jesus is on that cross, not you. His grace, you didn't deserve it. His providence, the fact that he would die on the day that the Passover lambs would be slain. Whatever it is you need to know about God can be seen in that event in his power because he suffered willingly and would rise again from the dead by his own power. 
Jesus is saying here, especially for those who would read John later, here's the disclosure of my deity. You want to know what I am like as the representative of the Father? It is not just a blazing light, but it is a crucified Son. Look, follow, live. The amazing thing about this passage to me is that it hearkens to this greater reality of light or brightness bringing things in. You you see it in the entire natural world. Remember those science experiments from like fifth grade where you like, you, you grow a plant Maybe this was yours. You did it at a science fair. You you can grow a plant in darkness and you know that it never grows. You can grow a plant in light all over the place and it just kind of flourishes. And here's the cool one. You grow a plant with the light on one side and what happens to the plant? It reaches forth. Like it was designed, like the brightness brings it in. Like there's something about the way that God created the plant that the light draws it in, that it wants to like follow it. You see the same thing with brightness bringing in butterflies. Like, I don't know what they see. And frankly, I don't even know how scientists think they know what they see. (laughs) But they obviously, at least way better than me as I'm partially colorblind, can at least see some display of brightness. They're attracted to, to, I mean, they just, they float and they rest on these, these things that just stick out. They have like a ton of color. My favorite one, even though I know it's tough on all of our clothes, are moths. <laughs> They're, like, they just crave light. They just find it, you know, wherever it is. And you could see them, like, especially on like, a hot summer night and there's a light outside and they're just like crawling all over that thing. I mean, they like light so much that they'll fly into a fire and die. It's just something in them that's like... I want the light. I want the light. I just need light. I want to, I want to follow light. And so has God created your eternal soul. He's created it to crave the light who is Christ. I think this quick little line that I heard from John Piper, it's so helpful. He says, the light of Christ is the brightness of God shining on the retina of the human soul. Isn't that good? The light of Christ is the brightness of God shining on the retina of the human soul. Some are seeking light. They're trying to grow. They're trying to thrive by like seeking other things, following other things, whether it's the applause of man or whether it's stuff or maybe it's some other kind of like religious guru or source. And yet Jesus is saying, no, I am the light. I satisfy the craving of the soul. There is life with me. Follow me. Which leads us to two practical So practical considerations. Enticement and excitement. Enticement and excitement. There are some of you here today who are damned in darkness. And you are trying to satisfy that ache in your soul with things that are leading you closer and closer to eternal hell itself. And my prayer would be for you that you would fully and finally recognize that Jesus himself is the divine light of life that you actually crave crazy thing about darkness is that it has this ability to alter the way that you think and the way that you feel. Like you don't even 
begin to recognize. Did you know that prolonged darkness will drive you crazy? I just finished a book a few, well, actually last month. The, the, The title is just fascinating in and of itself. It's called The Madhouse at the End of the Earth. It's, um, it follows the story of this young Belgian commandant, Adrian Degerlage, and he was one of the first ones to try to find the South Pole, uh, before uh, Shackleton, by the way. So there's this series of unfortunate events where he and his crew of about 30 guys are, are making their way to the South Pole, and Thing after thing happens, and it delays them because their goal was to get there before winter and to get out before winter because it'll freeze out. Well, he finds himself on the precipice of a decision like, okay, are we going to take the chance and try to make it to the South Pole and get out, or are we just going to turn around and go home because this is the only shot we got? I mean, he raised money for years. This was a three-year expedition. He decides to go for it, and it was the worst decision he could have made. Probably like four weeks into it, he gets locked into an ice pack. And the entire Arctic, I mean, Antarctic Ocean freezes around him. And now he and his men are stuck to wait out in Antarctic winter. Now, for you guys, you're just thinking, oh, man, that stinks. But it's cold. Oh, yeah, it was cold. <laughs> but you want to know what's worse? One month of no sunlight. About two weeks into the total darkness, the guys started hearing voices. They started seeing things. It wasn't demonic, it was psychological. They were created for light. Some of them even accidentally killing themselves because they lost all awareness of how, how like they were threatened by the environment. They would just roam away from the ship thinking that they were going to find food and not bring a compass or not, you know, follow another way back. I mean, it was just an insane story. And it reminds us of like the way that most people are living their lives. Like you look around and you're like, why do I do the things that I do? And why is my life such a mess? Why why am I so empty? I was like, there's a darkness there. Sure, you could see the natural light, but you're missing the light of Jesus. And he is offering something superior to you. He is offering light for your soul. You know, I was thinking about this this morning, especially for those of you who are not yet in Christ. I want to just say this. Like I, I, I grew up in, in a church. We'd sing these, these, what we thought were old hymns, but they weren't that old. They were only like 100 years old. Like really old hymns were like four or 500 years old. But some of them just like, they haunt you. They just still like ring in your mind. Like, I was thinking of a song this morning that I honestly haven't thought of in 20 years. And it made me cry. It's a simple title. Some people call it Jesus, I Come. And some people call it Out of Darkness into Light. Listen to these verses. See if you can resonate with the invitation that Jesus is giving here that has been captured in this poetry. I want to sing it, but if I did, too many people would comment on me actually singing it that they wouldn't listen to the words. So I'm just going to read it. Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Into thy freedom, gladness and light, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of my sickness, into thy health, out of my want and into thy wealth, out of my sin and into thyself, Jesus, I come to thee. I could go on, but I will summarize the second verse. We'll talk about out of our shameful failure and loss. The third verse we'll talk about out of unrest and arrogant pride. And then the fourth one, out of the fear and dread of the tomb. Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Some of you are slaves to your pride. You are slaves to your shame, to your failure, to your loss. You fear the tomb 
and Jesus is offering a way out through his life, seen brilliantly in his death on the cross and his resurrection. And he says, come to me in faith. Live by my word. Walk behind me. Follow me all the way to the presence of God in heaven. Why are you waiting? For what are you waiting? Come. Follow. That's the point of this text, friends. Look at verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. The same invitation that I just gave is what Jesus gave, and he was calling people to believe in him to follow his light. There's enticement. I hope you see it. I pray you'll respond. There's excitement. Friends, if you're already in Christ, you're like, man, I, okay, thanks, Justin. Great reminder. I'm following Jesus. Check. That was 50 minutes. I already knew that. Uh, friends, I, I I think Jesus knows that you know that. And he wants you just to be reminded of the light that you enjoy. I've never lost my vision. I think it's 2020. I may not see colors well, but I can see stuff. But you know the old saying you don't know what you got till it's gone. Some of the older saints are shaking their heads vigorously at me right now. <laughs> Uh, friends, it's so easy to forget what you got. You need to be excited about what we have. Yeah, the, the world hurts, but at least you know why it does. Uh, things are painful, but at least you know it's not the end. Like you, you can see, you can see past the death, past the distress, past the disease, past even those low moments of depression, like I know this isn't the end. I know that there's something else going on. To reference Lewis again, I love these lines from his essay in The Weight of Glory. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Did <laughs> you see Jesus? That's a plus. Amen. And because you see him, you see everything else. You know, you even know why you struggle with the sin that you do. But you also know it won't last forever. You know why your lost loved ones don't come to Jesus, but you also know how they can. You know why there's death and destruction in the world, and you know how. <laughs> It will ultimately be obliterated. You see Jesus, and because you see him, you see everything else. Remember that that is true for you. Reflect that you know the ultimate revelation of God and Christ, and because his son has made things right for you through his death and resurrection, all is ultimately well. Enticement, excitement. Reflect. Am I enticed by him? Am I following him? Remember, if you are following him, all is well.